following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from John 20, 19 through 31, and Acts 16, 25 through 34. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke, he saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, 
And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord. Shortly after Jesus' disciples um, were commissioned, after Jesus ascended into heaven, his disciples were commissioned to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Jesus had commanded. And the disciples went out and they bought into this mission. They saw the God, that God had been working throughout time and space to redeem his people back to himself. And they bought into that hardcore and they started evangelizing, sharing the gospel of how God went about redeeming the world, bringing us back to himself. And as the disciples shared the good news, people started coming to faith. People started believing that Jesus was their Lord and Savior. We use the terminology, they became believers. They became Christians. And like What we saw in Acts chapter 16 where the jailer believes, he said, what must I do to be saved? They said, believed that Jesus is Lord. He believed and he came to faith and then his whole family came to faith. They believed, they were baptized and they began their new life. Now listen, when when this happened, this wasn't just happening in isolated places, this was happening all over. All over, there are lots of families, lots of people coming to faith, churches growing, right? Paul went around planting churches, starting new churches and those churches multiplying. And as this happened, as the the gospel of Jesus Christ went out and people were believing, there became a need uh, to train these new believers in the basics of the Christian faith, right? How to pray, what it looks like to live as a Christian, what it looks like to believe certain Christian doctrines. And what happened over time throughout the centuries, uh, churches, our church fathers developed catechisms. Um, you might know what a catechism is. Catechism is typically a, um, a, a form of question and answer. You ask a question, there is some sort of answer that's offered that answers that question. And, and the purpose of the catechism was to put the training of discipleship into the hands of parents, um, into the local church leaders to give them sound doctrine um, to help raise up these new believers. And, and when you look at Catechisms are, are a handful of different catechisms that are still circulating today. Um, most catechisms have three pieces, three, three main sections to their catechism in training new believers. The first part is the Ten Commandments, right? teaching uh, the Ten Commandments, the Torah of what, what was given to Moses, uh, Mount Sinai. The second piece is uh, teaching people how to pray through the Lord's Prayer. Um, And then the third piece is teaching the basic tenets of the Christian faith in the Apostles' Creed. And if you've been with us since we planted Sacred City Moline a few years ago, you might recall that we've actually preached through the first two of those pieces. We've preached through uh, the Ten Commandments when we were going through the book of Exodus. Um, Last summer we were in the Lord's Prayer, learning what it looks like to pray like Jesus, and now we are rounding out our church-wide catechesis and preaching through the Apostles' Creed. Now for those of you who didn't grow up in the church, you hear the word creed, uh, and, and you probably can't help but, but think of the, the epic 90s band Creed, right? You know what I'm talking about? I love me some Creed, Creed was great. Creed was great. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about uh, this epic band. We're talking about the creed, and, and what a creed is, is a concise summary of Christian belief. 
or, or credo, the, the first two words of the Apostles' Creed, I believe, and that's, that's typically how the cadence of most of these, these creeds, I believe, it's a profession, it's stating some sort of Christian faith, and of these creeds, the Apostle Creed is the most common. Um, if you grew up in a liturgical church, or if you grew up going to Sunday school, or you were catechized, you probably remember reciting the Apostles' Creed on a semi-regular basis. You, you may even have it memorized. Uh, and so when you read through the Apostles' Creed with us, you can kind of check out and let it just go off the tip of your tongue. Uh, or even sometimes it's been used in some uh, liturgical senses for, for baptism, something that as somebody comes to faith, they profess this is what I believe, and they, they confess the Apostles' Creed. Now, that might be the case in a lot of churches. Some churches... However, if you grew up in a different sort of tradition where creeds were not exactly uh, kosher, right? There's some churches, there's some denominations that are leery of creeds and they have this motto that we have no creed. We have nothing to profess except for the Bible, right? The Bible is our creed. The Bible is what we believe and they take sort of a defensive posture towards creeds. Now this posture is due primarily to a misunderstanding of the authorship and the authority of the various creeds that have come to us. They might say, they, they look at the Apostles' Creed and say, well, you know, the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles didn't write it. They, 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 didn't, they didn't actually sit down and pen to paper the Apostles' Creed. It's not spirit-inspired. Therefore, this creed that Christians might uh, profess, there, there's no authority in it. There's no, there's no spirit-inspiredness to it. Now, it's likely that, that, that they're right about that. It's likely that the creed, the, what we call the Apostles' Creed, wasn't actually penned by the apostles, although there is a, a, a bit of a, a legend that each one of the 12 apostles sat down and contributed a line to the Apostles' Creed, then com, 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 uh, completing the composite of the creed that we know today. But the Apostles' Creed wasn't actually documented or, or acknowledged until 390 A.D., um, when St. Ambrose wrote a letter. Uh, and that's where we saw the, the term the Apostles' Creed. Um, and, and, and while that might have not surfaced until almost the fourth century, um, the, the reality is the Apostles' Creed is rooted in Scripture. In fact, the Apostles' Creed is based upon the teaching that the apostles were giving out in the first century. And so therefore, the authority of the creed is not based in the creed itself. It's not, it's not you know, some sort of magic concoction or cantation that Christians have. No, the authority of the creed is based in the scripture in which the creed refers to. It's like uh, the relationship of the sun and the moon. Right? The, the moon in itself produces no light. Right, that, that's kind of what the creed is. The, the, the creed itself has no power, but, but when the sun reflects upon the, the moon, then we see the moon illuminate. See, the, the same thing is true of the creed. The creed functions like the moon, that, that when the truth of scripture bounces off of the creed, that's where we see the light, that's where we see the power, that's where the authority lies. And so to dismiss the creed and say, oh, we have no creed but the Bible would be uh, unnecessary. Uh, it would be an unnecessary distinction to, to make and possibly detrimental. Now, I want to provide for you here real quickly four reasons why studying the Apostles' Creed is such a worthy undertaking for us over the next 12 weeks of this fall. First of all, the Apostles' Creed helps ground us in the historical church. 
The reality is is that that here at Sacred City Church, we're not inventing a new brand of Christianity. We're we're not creating something that's hip and trendy and fits in with sort of the the ebb and flow culture. What we're doing is we're we're rooting ourselves in our Christian heritage that goes back centuries. Right? We're we're building upon, we're, we're saying the same words that our Christian forefathers said themselves, and it's one of the reasons why we like hymns here at Sacred City Church. We get to borrow the language of the church fathers. We get to join our voices with what they're saying. So in this sense, that we're anchoring ourselves in a historic Christianity. The second reason why studying the Apostles' Creed is helpful is because the Apostles' Creed serves as a guardrail for orthodoxy. Now the reality is that there is always a threat of false teaching. There's always the chance that false doctrines are going to arise, that we might be veered in the opposite way. In fact, when the Apostle Paul is writing to his uh, understudy Timothy, he tells Timothy, hey, he warns them, people are likely to take scripture and twist it and bend it to fit their own fancy. Right? There, there, there's this desire that we have that we can take scripture and twist it to get it to say what, I wanted, what it wanted to say. And we feel this more and more when we live as faithful Christians within the society we live in. There's this cultural pull that churches are feeling to compromise, to to veer away from the truths of scripture, to veer away and and compromise what what sound doctrine is. And the uh, the Apostles' Creed provides us with a standard of orthodoxy, a, a, a version of mere Christianity that says this is what real Christian teaching is, and so it's helpful in that sense. It gives us guardrails from false teaching. The third thing, the Apostles' Creed promotes unity among the church. Now this might be a little bit counterintuitive because if you think, you know, we're setting the standard, here's what mere Christianity is, and we draw a line in the sand between orthodoxy and unorthodoxy, it might seem like there's some division here, but among the body of believers, that's not the case. Because the, the Apostles' Creed transcends denominational lines. Right, you, you hear this creed being professed in, in Lutheran churches and uh, Presbyterian churches and non-denominational, non-denominational churches and all over the, the globe. There are different churches that are professing this. And so in this sense, the Apostles' Creed helps us push back against Christian tribalism. It pushes back against theological elitism so that we can look across the lines of denominations and say, man, that's my brother. Right, that's my brother, that's my sister in Christ, and we can love the brotherhood. Al Mohler um, tells us, he, he says, every Christian believes more than the Apostles' Creed, but no Christian believes less. So we, we, can, we can have some confidence, we can find unity in the fact of these, these basic core tenets of the Christian faith that we ascribe to them, and we have this brotherhood as we believe this. Number four, the Apostles' Creed deals with matters of God and salvation, which is of ultimate importance to us. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The Apostles' Creed helps form our minds, helps form our beliefs, because what you believe about God will either lead a path toward life, as we saw in the tail end of of that interaction that Jesus had with his disciples, or will lead to death. Well, we have to realize that as we come to the Apostles' Creed and we profess it week in and week out, we aren't just spouting out arbitrary facts or cold, dead uh, words with an eye roll. 
And, and while anyone can speak the Apostles' Creed, that's not the way that Christians treat it, and just, it's a matter of mere words. For the Christian, the Apostles' Creed is dynamic, like our liturgy. When we come and we, we sit together and we profess our faith and we confess our sin and we hear the absolution, this isn't just words up on a screen that we're just mindlessly rolling off the tip of our tongue. This is a dynamic interaction that the church has together. It, it, it's like our spiritual pulse. It's the swell of our spiritual lungs with each breath. This is a sign that we are alive, that if you believe what you profess in the Apostles' Creed, it's evidence that you're spiritually alive. Now when we saw in the book of Acts, we see the jailer there who's in a bit of a crisis, he's about to commits suicide, and he finds himself in this pickle, and and the, the disciples say, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. Uh, he goes, wait, 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 what must I do to be saved? The disciples answer, Paul answers, believe, believe. Now three times in the creed we say, I believe. Now that's a statement that everybody can make because everybody believes something. Everybody has their own beliefs, has their own assumptions about life. There's no one who is beliefless. There's no such thing as a vacuum of belief. Everybody has beliefs. And so in some sense, everybody can say these first two words, I believe something. But the Christian creed is specifically saying what we believe. It says, I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ his Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. We go in and we dive in specifically on what it is we, we believe. And before we dive into what we believe in the Apostles' Creed, we first need to examine these, these, the first two words, I believe. What do we mean when we say, I believe. And I think to really to get to the root, to get underneath of what it means to believe, we've got to detangle it a little bit because I think this word has been hijacked by, by wall decor, uh, by, by cliches surrounding dreams and hopes and inspirations. We've really got to get to the heart of what it means because if belief is merely sentiment, if belief is just wishful thinking, then I think the dissenters of Christianity, right, the people, some of the atheists who step back and say, you know, faith in God is just a crutch for the weak, for the gullible, I think if if belief is just sentiment or, or wishful thinking, I think they might be right about that. But the Bible portrays belief as something more robust than blind faith, more robust than wishful thinking. In fact, we can find some great confidence here when we look at that passage from John chapter 20 where Thomas, one of the disciples, is there and he's saying, man, if, unless I feel Jesus, unless I see Jesus with my own eyes, I'm not gonna believe. Thomas was a reluctant believer. He had to see for himself his faith wasn't blind. And there might be something to say for the jailer too. If he went from wanting to commit suicide at one moment to rejoicing with his entire household who had come to faith in God, who had believed in God, that they would have that, turn that corner and, and have such a dramatic change, something has to be said about the power of belief, what belief is. And so I wanna explore what it means to say, I believe, and I wanna help, help this by breaking it down to three R's. Belief is revelation, belief is responsibility, and belief is 
relationship. Let's take a look at this first piece, revelation. Now by definition, Revelation means the revealing of knowledge. That something that was once concealed is now made known. It has has something to do with an intellectual uh, sort of cognitive awareness. So when we say I believe, specifically I believe in God, it means that we have some sort of intellectual knowledge about God. Yes, we're saying that God exists. But even more so, we're saying that we have knowledge of God and his character, of his persons, how he has revealed himself to us. Now, some people might say, well, there's so many different religions. There's so many different ideas about God. How do you know that God of the creed is the God? And that's a great question. If you're asking that question, I'm glad you're here with us this morning. Now, the reason why Christians are certain they know God is because he has revealed himself to us. We didn't dream him up. We didn't, we didn't create him. It's not, not, a, not a, an assembly of our own imaginations. That God has presented himself to us in a way that he's made himself known. C.S. Lewis says this, I believe in Christianity, I believe in the faith, as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. See, Christians can be certain that we know God, that we know God is who he says he is, that he is the God, because when we see God for who he is, everything in life starts to make sense. Not all at once, right? Not not all at once. But we start to see that that by God, by the awareness that God has given us and knowledge of himself, that all of the other pieces of the world start sort of falling in line on us. It's a way that we make sense of the world. And now there's a reason why Jesus went around giving sight to the blind. You think of Paul's conversion story, that he had scales over his eyes, and when he came to believe, they fell off. It's a new way of seeing the world. So Christians, it's not like we we do some uh, arithmetic problem, and we we come to the end of working the problem out, and we finally come to the conclusion. No, no, no. It's like God has showed the answer to us. He has shown shown us himself, and it's by that revelation we believe. The primary way that God reveals himself to us is through his word. See, that's why we're not spouting out constructs of of our imagination or or opinions about who God is. The creed, what we profess in the creed is rooted in the scriptures. It's rooted in what God has revealed to us through his word. And so in this sense, belief requires revelation or knowledge, knowledge of God and who he is. And we just wrapped up a sermon series in the book of Proverbs. Um, I hope you're wiser now. Uh, that's a hope. Me too. Um, but we started out that series, if I can draw you back eight or nine weeks, we started that series by saying that wisdom is more than knowledge. Right? You, you can know how to fire a taxes. You can know how to create a spreadsheet, but still be financially irresponsible. Now we can say the same thing about belief. Belief is more than just knowing things about God. It's more than uh, uh, having some sort of awareness of God's attributes. It's more than awareness of of the scriptures. In fact, in in the book of James, he talks about how the demons know who God is. Like they, they know facts about God and they shudder about him, but they still don't believe. There's a sense where we can know things about God but not be believers. 
And so this is where responsibility lies, that as we, as we see God, as he has revealed himself to us through his word, through the person of Christ, belief requires a decisive action based upon what we know. Think of it like if you're standing at a hot stove, you've got a pan over the oven or the stove top, and you know that pan is hot, right? If you're wise, you're not gonna go pick it up with your bare hands and walk across the room with it. You're gonna take proper action. You're gonna do something according to the knowledge that you have about the heat of the pan to prevent yourself from getting burned. See, belief has that same responsibility of this action, that, that if I know something, I'm going to carry out what, uh, my actions are gonna carry out and act upon what I believe. That is the responsibility piece of belief, that we have this conviction so deep that we are compelled to live in a certain way. There's an action that follows from belief. So it's God reveals himself to us and we respond accordingly. And, and what we saw with this interaction, and I know I'm not like doing a deep dive, I'm just doing a fly over these passages, uh, w- with the interaction that Jesus had with uh, his disciple Thomas. Like Thomas was making a choice to not believe. He said, unless this happens, I'm not gonna believe. But here we see this responsibility of taking what we know to act Upon it, because from our belief, whatever that belief is, flow our actions. See, if you believe the gospel deep in your heart, there are going to be certain actions and behaviors and characteristics that emerge in your life. And scripture is filled with all kinds of examples and distinctives and directives on what this looks like, right? What it looks like when you believe in your heart and live it out with your life. And I just want to like do a quick fly over here, of, of a couple of these things, what it looks like, sort of a big picture. Right, when you believe in God, when you believe the gospel, the Christian life is now devoted to living a holy life. Now, the word holy typically carries some sort of moral connotations with it. We're thinking uh, in matters of perfection, um, not sinning, doing the right thing, being upright, uh, and, and there is a, a there's definitely an aspect of that uh, in Christian living, that we are to be imitators of Christ, that we are to follow, be, follow Jesus, be upright in all our ways. But, but living a holy life also includes repentance, that, that when we do fall short of the glory of God, that when we do sin, that we become repentant people toward the sin that's in our life. We don't just say, oh, yeah, 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 whatever. We shove it on the rug. No, no, no. We approach that sin with a posture of repentance. In fact, when Jesus was announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God back in Mark's gospel as he's being baptized, the two things he says right away, repent and believe. Martin Luther says that repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin, that, that you have, to do one, you have to do the other. And really when you think about it, that's what discipleship is. This is the sum of the Christian life, of, of when we sin, and when we mess up, we, we acknowledge our mistakes, we acknowledge our errors, and we turn to God and confess our sins, and we, when we turn from them, and in faith we live and point our lives in a new direction. See, that's, what, that's, the, that's the motor, that's the engine of discipleship, that, that we're constantly in this pattern and, in, and giving ourselves this pattern of repentance and faith, we're constantly growing into likeness and image of Christ. 
so there, that's, that's a piece of it, right? If I believe the gospel, there's gonna be repentance in my life. There's gonna be this pattern of repentance and faith. Now, another aspect of, of believing the gospel, believing in God, means that we cultivate uh, this holy life uh, in the reality that, that it's not just this uh, in a moral sense, but in the sense that every part of our life has been set apart. Right? That's what holiness, to, to be holy, to be sacred, it means to be set apart, to be devoted, that every part of our life is devoted to God. This is the essence of Romans chapter 12 when, when, when uh, the Apostle Paul says to, to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. We, we could reframe this and say in light of what you believe about God, be fully devoted to him in all ways. Now this isn't just the occasional Sunday morning or, or Sunday morning and, and a little bit here, uh, um, here and there throughout the week. Um, though, though that's part of the, the, part of the picture, right? Uh, we're devoted to God. Sunday mornings are priority. We're, we're devoting ourselves to our discipleship. We want to be part of the communion of the saints. We want to enjoy the sacraments together to be refueled and nourished on those Sunday mornings, but extends far beyond the grace of Sunday mornings. See, Paul is talking about offering the entirety of our life and our existence to him. That means believing the gospel has a direct impact on how we live in every arena of our life, whether our, our marriage, our sexuality, our relationships, the, the work and rest dynamics that we have, our finances, the way that we engage in community, the gospel has implications. What we believe ripples into all of those places in our life. There's not a single place in our life that is immune from the impact of the gospel. And let me just touch on one last thing here. As we talk about how it impacts uh, our lives, I wanna talk about community specifically, um, how the gospel transforms us uh, and makes us part of a community. Um, you might ask, like why, if, if, we're, if we're professing the Apostles' Creed together every Sunday, or you know, whenever we get together and we profess it, why, don't, why do we say I believe instead of we believe, right? If we have this sort of corporate identity of being part of something, why don't we say we believe? Now, there's a reason for that. Because yes, we believe together. We, we believe together, but in saying, I believe, there's this, it indicates personal responsibility, personal onus for what I personally believe because I cannot believe for somebody else down the pew. I can't do that. It, 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 there's a personal responsibility to say, this is what I believe. But as we say this individually, one of the biggest indicators that you own your Christian belief is if you're living in Christian community. So when we say I believe, we, we say it with a chorus behind us. And if your version of Christianity makes community an auxiliary piece, then it's, it's, it's un, unbiblical, right? If your version of Christianity is, I believe and I have this thing with me and Jesus and that's that, and, you know, and nobody else, you know, it, the community is an auxiliary piece, but it's not the main thing, then it's unbiblical because what the Apostles' Creed does, it orients us in the reality that God himself is a community, Right, the, the three pieces, the three main headings of the Apostles' Creed speak of the communal nature of God, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that God himself is a community.
And so Christian belief, right, when we say I believe that God is a community in himself, our Christian belief presses us in the responsibility to live out our faith in the midst of a community. This is, this is a blessing, friends, because it's really hard to believe something and to live, try to live it out on your own. You get around other like-minded people who can say and profess and really believe, I believe this about God. Man, then you got a brotherhood. Then you got people to go shoulder to shoulder with and try to navigate life with. Man, and part of that, stepping into that is our responsibility, our, re, uh, our, our responsibility, our response to what God has revealed to us. So that's the responsibility piece. We've got to take action, right? James says faith without works is dead. Now listen, you can have knowledge about God. You can even have your life shaped by that knowledge to some degree. But until there is trust, belief is incomplete. Now, we kind of jumped right in the middle of the story in John chapter 20 where uh, Thomas is doubting that Jesus has been resurrected. Right? This is all after the whole cross business. Jesus uh, risen from the dead. He's appearing to other people throughout. Other disciples are telling Thomas what, what they've seen with their own eyes, that Jesus is up, he's moving, he's, he, he, he's not dead anymore, he's alive. And when you think about it, Thomas has been tracking with Jesus for the last three and a half years or so. That, that as Jesus has gone about his ministry, um, he, he heard Jesus talking about the fact that Jesus would die, that he'd be crucified, that, that he would be resurrected three days later. And you could go and you could ask the disciples, do, do you believe in the resurrection of the body? Do you believe that God is going to raise our bodies up again someday? And, and Thomas, among the other disciples, would say, yeah, Absolutely. His life was shaped around the knowledge of God. He he knew facts of God. He knew who Jesus was. He followed Jesus. He was learning from Jesus, right? There's a sense where his life was shaped by Jesus, but he refused to believe. He says, unless I see Jesus with my own eyes, unless I I touch him, his resurrected body, I, I will never believe. Therefore, at that moment in time, Thomas is not a believer. His belief is incomplete. He, he's got the knowledge. He's got the revelation. He's got the responsibility. He's been living in a certain way. But the relationship, the trust piece is, is missing. Now, fortunately for Thomas's unbelief, Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up right in front of him. And in this moment, Thomas realizes that Jesus is actually alive. Like he's not dead, it's not, not some sort of ghost. That Jesus in, in the resurrected body is there standing in front of him and Jesus speaks to him and, and invites him, he says, touch my hands where the nails had pierced, and touch my side, and, and Thomas does, and in that moment he, he believes, he trusts now. See, something, something clicks, something flipped in his mind where now th- these weren't just uh, theories or pieces of nuggets of information about Jesus. This is real, 
And what Jesus says next in that passage is really encouraged to us because he, he tells him, you know, Thomas, it, it took you to actually see and to feel for you to believe, but blessed are those who will come after you who don't get the, the privilege of seeing, of touching for themselves. See, there are generations of people uh, after Thomas who wouldn't have that luxury, you and me. And we, don't get, we don't get to see Jesus in the flesh. We don't get to touch Jesus with our own hands. But the call to trust Jesus, the call to believe, to put our faith in Jesus, to have full confidence in Jesus is the same. See, biblical belief is full-weighted reliance upon God. It's a deep conviction that holds us up. It's like what you do when you sit down on a chair, right? You come to the chair, you're typically not really thinking about, oh man, is this, is this thing gonna hold me up? Right? Can I put my whole weight on it? You, no, you kind of assume it. You sit down on it. You, you rest your entire weight on it. If you're at home, you kick your feet up and, and really the whole weight of your body is supported by that. This is what, it's a picture of what belief looks like. It's to throw your whole self the weight of your entire being upon the person of Jesus. It's this deep conviction that yes, everything that scripture says about Jesus is true, it's reliable, I trust this. When you think about it, trust is the currency of relationship. It's hard to have a relationship with somebody that you don't trust. It's hard to turn to that person and say, man, I want to depend on you. I want to open myself up to you. I want to give myself to you. If you don't trust that person, you can't do it. See, trust is the the currency of relationships. And what it's saying is that I have deferred self-reliance. I've stopped relying upon myself and I'm trusting you. The jailer was in a very dark moment. As he thought, like, he thought the prisoners had escaped, that it was the end of his life as he knew it, right? Once they find out all the, all the, all the prisoners had escaped on his watch, he was gonna face a lot of trouble. And so he, he's like, oh man, what do I do? I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna kill myself. Right, that moment is a picture of where self-reliance gets you. eventually it's gonna break down. Eventually you're going to fail yourself. You're gonna find that you can't even trust yourself. But Christian faith is saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit who raised him from the dead, who now lives in me. See, that trust invokes personal relationship. It's not just like knowing facts about somebody, like, like your favorite athlete, you know stats and facts and where they live and what all this stuff, no, no, no. It, it moves from the realm of knowing to having a real relationship. And we see this with Thomas, when he professes faith in Jesus, he says, my Lord and my God. That, that's personal language. It means there's a deep relational trust. See, that's what Christian faith looks like. And as we talk about faith, 
And these components of faith, I don't want you to be mistaken in Christian faith that faith is just faith for the sake of faith. We're not saying in some generic way, have faith, just believe. We're not saying, you know, have stronger faith, believe harder, do better. That's not what Christian faith is saying. Christian faith says that our faith rests upon a person. There's an object of our faith. It's not faith in this sort of nebulous thing. It's our faith is in God. Our faith rests upon God. We're saying here, as we say, I believe in God, we're saying I believe in the promises of God. I believe that they're true. I believe God is who he says he is. I believe that God is working to redeem the brokenness of this world. I believe that Jesus Christ came into the world to carry out the plan of God, to go to, to, go to the cross for my sin, to, to give me, to offer me forgiveness, to, to lead me into a new life. I believe that the Holy Spirit is now in me. The Spirit's working, generating faith in my heart, helping me to, to replace my doubt and unbelief with new faith, with real belief, with genuine faith, which can compel me to live in a certain way. See, this is what we're saying when we say, I believe in God. And because faith is a trusting relationship, faith isn't this one and done thing. You know, like, oh, oh, I said that prayer one time way back in the day. You know, now, now I, I know. I said that prayer, so now I know I believe, and I'm moving, moving on. When my time comes, I'm gonna get to heaven. You know, scripture says, the righteous shall live by faith. This is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment activity to trust in God, to rest in him, to, to, to give him our full dependence. As we make our way through this world, we do so by faith. And, and as we have faith, what we have to see here is that there's a power in faith. In a sense, yeah, faith is for the weak, right? Because if you realize that you're gonna let yourself down, you gotta find somebody else to depend upon. But it, faith itself has a power. That faith opens up doors. It moves mountains. Faith has a power to save us. The jailer says, what must I do to be saved? The answer is to believe. Now, I realize that in this room, there are people who, have, who are different places in life when it comes to faith. There are some people who would admit, man, I, I don't think I'm a believer. I'm not quite there yet. Yeah, maybe I'm kicking the tires, um, but I just don't know if I can buy in yet. And listen, if that's you, I'm glad you're here. Honestly, this is the best place for you to be. It means that God's pursuing you. That God's at work trying, he's revealing himself to you. And so if if that's you, I wanna just encourage you to stick around. Come, come, Come hang out with us at the visitor forum afterwards, just on the other side of this wall. Step into a missional community. Interact with other ordinary people who are, tr- who are living by faith day by day, moment by moment, imperfectly, who are striving to live by faith. 
Come see God at work. And as you look around, as you make observations, let me, I just wanna ask you this question. Under the first assumption that everybody believes, I want you to be able to pinpoint what do you believe? What, what are the assumptions that you have about life in this world about God? Can you, can you pinpoint those? I think the first step in having this conversation is to be able to do that. But then the second question that I want you to just give yourself to is like, well, why don't I believe? See, Thomas made a, will, uh, like a, a mindful choice. Say, all, unless this happens, I'll never believe. And I think we do a lot of the same thing. Like, unless I get this promotion, unless my mom gets healed of her cancer or whatever it is, I, I won't believe. Something was standing in Thomas's way of believing. What, what's standing in, in your way of believing? Just ask. That's the question I want to ask. But there are others in this room who are believers. We, that we can, together, we can profess the words of the Apostles' Creed and mean it wholeheartedly. And some of us are full of faith. And, and listen, if that's you, if you feel like you're a, a full of faith person, man, we are grateful for you. You are a deep encouragement to us. And one of the ways that we're deeply encouraged by your faithfulness is watching you. Watching your conviction that you want others to believe what you believe. And you being a good missionary, we're encouraged. We learn something from you that inspires us to share the gospel with other people. So thank you, if that's you, man. And I would say like over the next few weeks as we just build out this Apostles' Creed, let people know what you believe. But I would say that most of us sort of like teeter-totter just a little bit, some of us more than others. We teeter-totter with doubt Right? There's a lot of us that can relate to Thomas. He's called Doubting Thomas. And I kind of see it, but I don't know if I fully believe it. You know, we sort of ebb and flow. I would even say some of us function as if we're functional unbelievers. Like we might profess something, but then our hearts are sort of disengaged from that, so we don't live in a certain way, or our faith seems in, inconsistent. And so for you, I just want to say, like, this is a good place for you, too. <laughs> this is a good place to wrestle with those questions, to wrestle with those doubts, to work out your faith with fear and trembling, work your salvation out. And, and know that in believing, without seeing, without touching, like Thomas got to do, there is blessing in that. But, but let me share this last piece. The good news for us is that our salvation does not depend upon our faithfulness, does not depend on the amount of our belief, the consistency of our belief. Our salvation rests completely upon Jesus. See, where I, I, where I didn't know, Jesus did. Where, where I dropped the ball, Jesus picked it up with his responsibility. Where I ran away from God and relationship with God, Jesus pursued us. And when you see what Jesus has done, when, when you see how Jesus has lived a faithful life on your behalf, and that invokes worship, 
And here's the cool thing. The, the more we see what Jesus does, the, the more we worship. And the more we worship, the more our faith is strengthened. So Christian, let's come in here every Sunday and let's realize what God has done for us. Let's wholeheartedly cling to the profession of the Apostles' Creed and as we do so, let us be filled with affections, be filled with worship for Jesus and let that stoke our faith. This meal that we come to this morning is meant to do that as well. This, this meal is more than the physical elements of bread and wine or juice. This is a spiritual meal, that that Jesus himself is present when Christians come and partake of the Lord's Supper. And in this presence, Jesus is nourishing our faith. So regardless of you feel like you had really strong faith this week or if you were sort of like, eh, come to the table, receive what Jesus has done for you, his body broken, his blood shed, to forgive you of your sins, to make you right with God. That just as we, we say today, that I'm a child of God, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. For many who are serving who come forward. Father, we pray, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you, God, for what you've done, that you've revealed yourself to us in the person and work of Christ and your word. And Father God, would you now stoke within us faith? Would you grant us the gift of faith that we might believe wholeheartedly upon you? And as we believe, God, would you shape our lives to reflect those deep beliefs? Would you make us into a certain type of of people who are shaped by character and morals and values devoted to community, to, to purity, to holiness, to being missionaries, sharing the good news? God, would we be unashamed of our belief that this is the power of God unto salvation? We thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. 